I'll tell you a little story. Actually, I was a columnist. Um, I didn't. My, I was a. I was an editor. I was the bureau chief in Washington. So I wrote a column every week, and in one of the columns, <laughs> I said, "Carlos Salinas should be the next DG of the WTO." And I said, "Ruggiero's a good guy. He's a smart guy." But we've had nothing but Europeans running the gat, and it's time for someone from a developing country, someone from the Western Hemisphere. And he also had the, the the street cred from the NAFTA. Yeah, and he had brought Mexico into the gat. Yeah, I mean, his, his and he was a brilliant guy. Uh, and so I I said, you know, it's it's good that there's more than one candidate, but Salinas is the candidate they should choose. And Ruggiero saw this column. <laughs> But he hired me anyway. <laughs> did he ask well, you? Like, well, he did. He said, well, I said, you should be aware that I wrote this comment. He goes, yes, I know. <laughs> You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Thank you for listening. This is Rodolfo Rivas, and this is my podcast, the place for candid and insightful conversations with talented individuals in international Geneva and beyond. I know there was a bit of a break in the episodes, but teaching trade law at my alma mater left me no time for the podcast. So now that the semester is over, we are back. There are a couple of episodes in the works, so stay tuned. But today, you are in for a treat. My guest is Keith Rockwell, Director, Information and External Relations Division and Spokesperson at the World Trade Organization from 1996 until now. Keith is a legend at the WTO and I think the longest, service, longest serving division director. So if it happened at the WTO, he saw it and he can probably tell you about it. In fact, that was his job. Or that is his job at least for a few more days before he retires. My conversation with him was informative, but also great fun. He talked about how his father was influential in his worldview and some of the personalities he met growing up, including Desmond Tutu. This eventually led him to study history and political science at Tufts University, which brought him to Europe, where he would later return after getting into journalism. Bernstein and Woodward inspired him, and he scooped a couple of stories during the Reagan years. Listen on if you want to find more about this. He's a passionate Boston, Rex, Boston Red Sox fan, so we talked about that and how they broke the curse of the Bambino. We also talked about the WTO, how it has changed, and some inside baseball stories about trade. It was a delight talking to Keith, and I hope, I hope to speak to him again since he will be around. In the meantime, you can listen and enjoy the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Take a listen. Please let us know by liking, subscribing, and or reviewing if you enjoyed this conversation. I know I keep saying it, but it really helps. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employer. Keith, good afternoon. I am really glad you have some time to talk to me. 
I'm very delighted to do so. So let's start at the very beginning. Where are you from? Well, I'm from New York City. New York. I, um, I grew up, I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and I lived in New England and in New York um, until I was about uh, 28. And so then they, I, I moved the to Coast. the East Coast, yeah. And then I moved to, to I went to university just outside Boston. And then um, I moved to Washington, D.C. And I was working as a journalist then. <clears throat> and I, um, I moved there and started covering trade uh, full-time, the trade bill. I covered international economics, so I covered the World Bank and the IMF as well. But I covered trade policy and enjoyed that very much, went to business school at night and that was very demanding yeah um i was voted the most boring man in washington dc three years in a row which is i don't believe that tough <laughs> tough competition <laughs> well people who knew me from university i went to tufts university yeah right? actually well sorry to cut you it's a okay. bit right, but let's go back to to growing up in boston like why why did you decide to go to you studied history and political affairs yep Yep. Why, why I, that? Well, well, I went to, when I was at university, you mean? Yeah. Well, I moved, I went from New York City up to Boston to go to university. Um, I was born in Boston. We had lived in Rhode Island, and we spent our summers in Rhode Island after uh, moving to New York. And um, so I, I always liked Boston. Um, I liked the baseball team very much, still do. And the Celtics? Uh, the, the basketball team, I also like them. Which they're actually doing pretty well. They're right doing now. very well, they're doing very well. <laughs> Tonight is a big game. Yeah. Uh, but the Boston Red Sox, I like them very much. Uh, which, when I was younger, they were, it was always very horrible. They would always find a way to lose, yeah. uh, which was just excruciating. Because of the curse. The cur that's right. <laughs> The curse of the Bambino. That's very yeah. good, Rodolfo. You know your baseball. But then they suddenly, and I can remember, we moved here. Um, well, well let, me, let me finish. So why did I study history and political science? Well, I liked history. When I was a young boy, my father was at Oxford, and so I really enjoyed studying uh, European history. Uh, as an American kid, it was so much older and longer Uh, you know, the country, the U.S., the history dates only from about the, really the 17th century. Yes. And so when you were talking about things, you know, from the 11th century, like the Battle of Hastings, I mean, this to me was, and you would go to these places and you would see where these battles were fought and these castles and everything. And I was just captivated by that. And, and the politics, history and politics and economics, I believe they're all interwoven Yeah. Some people even say that you could, you could fold religion into that. And, of course, that's, there's a lot to be said for that, too. So all of these things I found to be very interesting. And, was uh, it like something that like you talked about it like in the dinner table? Yes. Was it like something that was like present everywhere in yes. your household? Yes, it was. It was. Uh, my father was and still is um, a guy who's very active in, in politics. He was very active. He was a, he was a clergyman. He was a bishop. Okay. And um, he was very active in the civil rights movement, and he was very active in the anti-apartheid movement. Uh, he was very active in the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War movement. So these kinds of things were, we would, as little kids, we would go <laughs> on these marches, which we thought were, you know, a little bit, um, well, why are we doing this? <laughs> <laughs> how did, your, how did your father like explain this to to you at that age? Um, well, he just said, "Look, this is this war is is terrible." You, or, or the civil rights thing was very easy to explain. He just said, 
You, you don't treat other human beings mm. this way. Yeah. Uh, and you know, because because of of my interest in history, I, I I learned about what the American Civil War was about, and 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 this he said this is this is a continuation. We need to work to make sure that people of color have equal opportunity in this country, and that right. was something that had a profound impact on me. So that was like uh, something that probably guided you even to this day. Maybe, maybe. Um, um, I mean, certainly. I, I enjoy being around people from all over. I mean, I really, that's something that is great. To be able to talk to people about the experiences in their own countries uh, is, and, and our kids, they grew up here and they, you know, their best friends are from Ghana. Mm. So they understand things about Ghana that you can't read in a newspaper, yeah, yeah. you know? And that's a great thing. And, and so for us uh, growing up, it was very, um, um, It was, we were, my, my parents campaigned for, for candidates. They were very active uh, in support of the De De Democratic Party. And, um, and I remember conversations in the household. Uh, I remember um, my, my father was very close friends with Desmond Tutu. Okay. And, and Desmond would speak at my father's church on the Upper East Side, St. James Church on Madison Avenue. And Desmond would preach there You know, I was a guest preacher, and he would often stay at my parents' place. And there was a dinner party, uh, and the mayor of New York, who was Edward I. Koch at that time, and I'll, I'll never forget this, it, uh, uh, Desmond and Mayor Koch got into this huge argument about sanctions against the apartheid um, okay. uh, government. And Koch's argument was, yes, but if you sanction them, then that means the, the workers are going to suffer. They, they won't be able to, they'll lose their jobs because there's no market for the products that they sell in South Africa. And Desmond's argument was, look, this is a bigger thing than that. Uh, and it was a fascinating because, you know, the, it wasn't like he, the Kotcher's point didn't have merit. It was true. These guys did lose their jobs. And you were how old at this age? I was, I was a, probably a teenager, I don't know, 17. And you remember this, like... Oh yeah! Like you, oh, it was, it was, it was absolutely <laughs> mesmerizing. These 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 towering figures, charismatic people, uh, having this this very interesting argument, and everyone just was listening to it. And, and but this like pretty much marked like all the way to like it was pretty much like an introduction for you to what you would be doing. It could be, it could have been, yeah, it could have been. I mean, I, I found this to be to be fascinating, and and at the end of the day, that was an example of sanctions working. Sanctions worked, mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't just economic, it was but sporting. For a country like South Africa that had uh, great pride in their rugby and cricket and other, other sporting teams to be banned from international competition, that, that hurt. Yeah. And uh, I remember Desmond defending one of my heroes, John McEnroe, because uh, Ma <laughs> McEnroe was a, was a person, a person of Irish origin, a yeah, left-hander yeah, yeah. from New York. He, we, Who we had, had a, a temperament. Of, we had a lot of things in common. <laughs> and, uh, and, but he was a brat. You know, yeah. he, used to, he used to shout at people, and my mother was appalled by his bad behavior. Desmond said he never would play in South Africa. Others, they say, there's a million dollars to play in Sun City or one of those places that they had there. And, and McEnroe said, no way. So... You know, you, you get a certain system of values that are instilled in you. And, um, and you may, perhaps are not even aware of, but like later on, looking back, you perhaps see the connections. Well, I mean, you, you, there's a very strong sense of, of right and wrong. Yeah. Um, which, which has been 
for me, something very important. And, uh, and going, to see, um, going to see friends in South Africa, whether it was Desmond or others, my parents couldn't stay with them. They had to stay in white parts of the, of the city, which was, sounded to me to be very, very strange. So, so that was, you know, that kind of exposure to issues was something that I found uh, very, very stimulating. And um, I went my junior year in, at, at Tufts, I went to study in London, and I studied economics and, and um, politics there as well, which I, I found to be great. Uh, and that kind of sent me on my road. And then I... And Tufts, like, uh, I think it has like a really good reputation on international relations. It does. Like diplomacy and international... The, the Fletcher School, yeah. that's right, that's right. Uh, one of the best, one of the best. Um, and, and was, a, I, was that the reason why you picked that school? I think I might have picked it because it was I was yeah, able yeah, to home. see the Red Sox play. <laughs> <laughs> so I see that sports is like really sports is also very like important for me. Yeah, <laughs> and, well, and also sports. I mean, you talked you touched a bit on it, but I think that sports. You were talking about religion and everything has com uh, connected. I would even add sports. Yeah, I, I think yeah. you're right. I think you're right. Well, this 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 example of sanctions against the yeah. South African teams, and so you know, whenever someone says sanctions don't work. You think you about can point this. to this, yeah, yeah. and and in fact, in the WTO context, we have Article Article Twenty, yeah, and Article Twenty One, and you can, you you cannot nothing that's done here can prevent you from putting in place your UN obligations. Yeah, so so that's I mean that's a a um, uh, you know I, I studying was was something that I. I took an interest in, but I wouldn't say I was a passionate scholar when I was <laughs> at university. I thought it was for meeting people. Uh, well, but, but actually, I, I am approached by many young students. And when I was in school, I was really focused on, on, on studies. And I neglected everything else, like uh, the social aspect of it, yeah. which I, I believe now, with looking back, is perhaps maybe even more important. Well, or I, you have to find the balance between the two. But, but I mean, I used to, and I remember this, I would sit around in the, in those days, college kids could drink beer. Uh, the drinking age was 18, and we would go to the pub with your friends, and we would have these huge amazing, arguments. Yeah, amazing discussions. We'd, yeah, about, oh, and about, about apartheid, about civil rights, about women, about the Red Sox, about, you know, whatever, <laughs> about all these things, about, uh, about the, the, the Iranian revolution. And very, very sometimes heated discussions. And what was interesting about this was that you'd be sitting there having a beer with your pals and people would have very different views about things. And in, in the course of listening to somebody say something backed in response to what you've said, This would happen often. Someone would say something, and suddenly you would say, hey, wait. That doesn't make sense. Maybe what he's saying is correct. <laughs> That's, yeah. I hadn't actually thought of it that way before. When you say it out loud or when you hear it, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe he's right and I'm wrong. Mm. Um, but you see, you don't have that anymore, yeah. unfortunately. Because, and part of it is you don't, you don't have the pub. Um, you don't... I'm not advocating teenage drinking, <laughs> but I mean, you don't, people don't come together. Yeah. And, and my son, uh, who went to the University of Michigan, um, he said that he didn't have arguments like this. And in the course of their discussions in class, uh, I said, well, do you challenge people? He said, no, because if you do, you'll be trolled. 
on social media. And so people would just instead get together and people who share the exact same point of view get together and bounce very similar ideas off each other in an echo chamber. Yeah. And, and to be frank, it's, it's intellectually dishonest to spend your time only with people with whom you agree on everything. And to be able to hear from other people about perspectives that you hadn't considered, well, you know, that's a good way to learn. And not even in the classroom? Yeah, that's right. Not even in the classroom. Sometimes you'd, you'd, you'd have the, this is especially true in, in London, the professor would join you for a drink after class and you'd continue the discussion in, in the pub. Yeah. And, um, and it was a very, you know, and, and challenging the professor was something that you would try to do. You know, well, okay, Rockwell, you know, you, you, think, I'm, <laughs> you think I'm off base here, but you haven't considered the following three things. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe even they didn't believe it, but they're just like taking the argument all the way to, till the end. Yeah. To see where it goes. Well, that's right. And, and, and I don't think we have enough of that anymore. I don't but like uh, you're talking about your, your son, but I imagine that at home you had this. Oh, yeah. Like you, you tried to raise him like with this kind of attitude towards yes. hearing and... And my father still does this. If you have dinner at my, my parents' house, my father will immediately begin to say things. What books are you reading now? Mm. You know, what, what stories in the newspaper are of interest to you? And that kind of thing, you had to be on your toes. Uh, so, um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I thought that was, and that was kind of the way I thought, well, I thought everyone grew up like that. And, um, and then around our table, yes, and it's still the case. We still, and we have arguments. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussions. And my sons and my daughter, they really don't agree. <laughs> with with your well, that, no, no, no. Well, actually, I or they don't agree well, to having Kath, that. Catherine is Catherine is is more to the left, and the boys are more to the right. I the see. boys are in finance, and they are economists. They are economics students, uh, and Catherine is in, in tech. Okay, and they just have a different outlook, mm. and and it's fascinating because you really do realize as you get older that a lot of these arguments, the reason they go on for so long, is because there's merit on both sides of the argument. And you see that here in the WTO all the time. Yeah. It's not like, you know, these issues are easily resolved. If they were, like, we would have solved them already. Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, you move, you, oh, if you just take the issue out of the WTO and put it in the UN or somewhere else, you're going to resolve it. I don't think so. The TRIPS waiver, the fishery subsidies, these incredibly complicated and important negotiations yeah. that we're having, they have to be, you have to have these discussions. Yeah. And the issues aren't being resolved easily because they're not easy to resolve. And, and people, it's not like they're not trying, they are. I mean, I mean my boss, the director general, uh, Ngozi Okonjo-Uwela, she's, she's, you know, she's putting everything she has into this. And it's a risk. You know, she's being bold and it's, it's a risk. And my, my response is, well, yes, you are being bold. And yes, it is a risk. But, but if you don't, if you don't act in a bold way, and if you don't take some risks, you run the risk of just spinning your wheels and going nowhere. Yeah, and usually that change is something that scares people. It does. <laughs> I'm retiring in a few days, and that's a little bit scary. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, I we, think we can... I think it's even scarier for my wife, because I'll be around underfoot all the time. She's just, I think she's a little... <laughs> she, she's wondering what, what it will be. But it's before like, we get to that, sure. and I'm, I'm curious to see like what, what your plans are, mm -hmm. um, so you went to, to Tufts and yes. then uh, you started this, but then you went to, into journalism. I went into journalism, yeah. Like, uh, why journalism? 
Well, um, at that time, you had a lot of superstar journalists. Yeah, so that was like the era of Bernstein. And exactly. So that was like, did you watch Old President's Man? Uh, and course. you were like, I of want course. to do that. Yeah, oh yeah, I did. And I can remember, of course, I lived in New York and I went to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Forbes and Fortune and all these you know, Time magazine uh, 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 subsidiaries. And you don't start at the top in something like this, at least you very often don't. And so I was told, well, you know, you've got promise, but you need to go to Iowa. Go to work for the Des Moines Register, which is a very fine paper. Mm -hmm. But the idea of leaving New York was something that I just couldn't cope with. I just thought, oh my goodness. My girlfriend That's the center of the world. Well, I thought so. <laughs> I thought so. In New York. I still, I still, I still probably do think that, <laughs> uh, and uh, it's influenced my my family. One of my sons lives in Brooklyn, and the other one is moving from New York to moving from Boston to New York. So, <laughs> obviously, it's 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 in the blood. Um, and so I just said, well, you know, I was going to go and work for a bank. And I remember putting on my one suit and going for the job interview in the bank office, and it was felt like being in a morgue. Hmm. I was just sitting there, and the guy said, well, very good, young Rockwell, you can come and work at our bank, and we'll start you at $30,000 a year, and this was 1980, and I thought, okay, <laughs> and I went home, I said, looks like I'm going to start then, and my father said, well, okay, good, and then he came back, and he had met with this guy who was the editor of a, of a newspaper. A, 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 a highly respected but not very well-known newspaper called the Journal of Commerce. And my father had actually baptized his son uh, in, the, in the church a week or two before that, I think. And in the course of chatting about this, um, he said, he, they started talking, and, and um, he said to this guy, well, what is it that you do? And he says, well, I'm the editor of a newspaper called the Journal of Commerce. He said, you know, my son is interested in journalism. He says, well, have him come down. He studied in London, and he's been at Tufts and everything, blah, blah. So I went down there, and I got to tell you something. I went into that newsroom, and it was... It was just, you know, this the wire machines were spinning out all this copy, and guys were running around, and people had their sleeves rolled up, and people were under... You could feel the pressure, the deadline tension. And I just said... Wow! <laughs> <laughs> this like a, is what a, I a want. Romantic view of what journalism well, was. I don't know if it is. Is it still that? No, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Have you ever seen the movie The Post? Yeah, I'd love it. Yeah, well, that the way that newsroom was and the way the papers roll over—that was how, what my newspaper was like. And I told this to my kids, and they're like, "Dad, that looks like it's from the the Paleozoic era." <laughs> I said, well, not exactly the Paleozoic era, but I mean, you know, and you had to do this thing that's really hard, which is you have to analyze something that's happened, make it understandable for the widest possible audience, do it in a clear and concise way, and do it in a couple of hours. Yeah. And if you don't, you're fired. If you don't, if you miss your deadline and there's a white space in the paper, well, you don't come to work the next day. And that's yeah. every day. And that's a lot of pressure. And it, it can make you a great writer like Hemingway. Yeah. Who perfected his skill like doing that. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, to be able to write about something complicated and, and do it in a concise way, um, well, 
my division, these press officers, most of them are journalists. Yeah. Because they know how to do that. Mm -hmm. They know how to, how to synthesize something and get all perspectives, or at least, you know, uh, alternative perspectives presented in a way which says, this is how this argument is unfolding. And that was great. And I went to Washington and I just thought it was fantastic. I went up to Capitol Hill. I was a correspondent there. Much more interesting than being a White House correspondent. The White House correspondent seems to have the more glamour, but in terms of, of, the, of the buzz of the work, you're, if you're, if you're uh, covering Congress, you're going everywhere. You're going all around. You're going to various hearings. You're organizing interviews with lawmakers. You're talking to staffers. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that goes on up there. And, and did was, you ever like get to crack like a story like the one that you were... That well, inspired you? <laughs> well, I, I, well, I actually, I actually did, uh, which was quite interesting. It was a bit, little bit complicated, but, but the trade bill that was still the last major omnibus trade bill. Um, this was the the omnibus trade act of um, of 1988. It it was agreed by the Congress, both houses, and sent to President uh, Reagan for his signature. And Reagan was a pro-trade guy, yeah. um, but he vetoed this bill because there was a labor provision in there okay. about plant closings, which said that any company of more than, I can't remember, 500 employees or whatever, if you're going to close a plant, you have to give 60 days notice. I think that's what it said, something like this. Um, and this was something that the Republican Party did not favor. Uh, but it was hugely uh, popular in the polls. No one could really understand why they didn't like it in there, where the reasons were it'll be costly for business or whatever. Um, so because of this provision, the president vetoed the bill. Okay. So there was a guy who was working for Senator Kennedy on the Labor Committee. Um, Kennedy was the chair of the Labor Committee, and Ted Kennedy. And this guy was a Red Sox fan. So there's a great fraternity of Red Sox fans. You can <laughs> always, you know, it's, it's a little bit like a secret handshake. <laughs> and this guy was a buddy of mine. And he said to me, he said, are you aware of the letter? He called me into his office. I went, where's the letter? And I said, what letter? He said, if you told me you knew about the letter, I wasn't going to tell you this because I knew you wouldn't be telling the truth. He said, well, we've agreed with the Senate Finance Committee chair, Lloyd Benson, that we will put the, the plant closings as a separate legislation and take it out of the trade bill. Okay. And because that was the only reason why President Reagan did not approve the trade bill. So the, the trade bill then went to the president and he approved it and it became law. And the, the, the plant closings, they sent it to him and he didn't, in the, in, under the U.S. law, if you don't sign it within 10 days, it automatically becomes law. And so that's what... That's what happened. He didn't sign it, and it was over the summer break. It was in August. Nobody the was paying attention. Passed. <laughs> That's right. The ten day passed. And so both of those things became law, and I understood why this was happening. And so that was a that was a scoop that I had that I thought was pretty fun. Yeah, pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. And again, there was the Red Sox connection. Very important. <laughs> Where were you when the oh, when the Red Sox won? <laughs> Where were you when? Oh, the... oh, well, that's a good story. Um, <laughs> Because my sons became Red Sox fans too, and, and when we would go to to Rhode Island and um, be up in Boston during the home leave periods, we would go up to watch games at Fenway Park. And so the boys and Catherine, at an early age, became Red Sox fans. And <laughs> we um, 
we were able to watch games on late night satellite TV, but of course the game started very late. Yeah, that's not very very good here. The time difference. Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. So so. Uh, It was a Saturday morning and I was making breakfast for the boys and I was going to take them to their soccer games. Um, and they said, Dad, Dad, did we win? I said, no, no, we lost. This was, this was 2004, yeah. we lost. Not, we didn't only lose, the Yankees just humiliated us. We lost 17 to eight. And, and well, what, what, isn't there another game? I said, it doesn't matter, we're, we're down three games to zero. And they go, well, it takes four games. And I said, You don't understand. No team has ever come back from being down three to zero. And Thomas, who I think was maybe six, said, but dad, maybe we could be the first team ever to do this. And I said, Thomas, that's a nice thought, but you, know, <laughs> you really have to understand the reality. We're the Red Sox. Sure enough. So these kids are deeply spoiled. They just assume we're going yeah, to win every year. We win every year. Yeah, that's what they But how did, you, how did you convert them into fans? Because I, I'm a big Lakers fan. Oh. And I'm trying to convert, convert my daughters like... They don't really care much about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we take them to the games. Yeah. When you yeah, go to yeah, LA, take to them. That. They'll change because yeah. yeah, that's yeah. going to going to the, to a Lakers game would be pretty yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I'll have to do that. Going to Fen and going to Fenway. Is, yeah, that's an experience. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. the kids would go. You know, and they'd eat lousy hot dogs. And I remember one time we went, and it was I forget what year it was. But it was it was forty degrees. And in the bleachers, Centerfield bleachers, it was just, they were handing out bags of ice to put on your head. And everybody else left. But my older boy said, Dad, I get to go to a game once every two years. I'm not leaving. That's too, so yeah. I said, you can't, you can't penalize the kid who wants to stay. So everyone else went to a restaurant across the street in air conditioning. And Dan and I, we watched the whole game. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how you do it. Dedicated, yeah. dedicated. Yeah, take him to the game. Yeah, you know, yeah. buy them the souvenirs. I can show you the, 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 some of the pictures on my phone if you like. <laughs> I mean, you know, over the years. And it's just, uh, you know, it's a family thing. Yeah. Actually, the reason why I want them to be involved is because it's part of my life. And I want it to be like part of our lives together, yeah, well, like to share it. That's a good thing. Well, my advice to you, Rodolfo, is take him to the... Yeah, yeah, we'll have the, to go. We'll have to go. Unfortunately, yeah. we didn't make the playoffs this year. No. Maybe well, next year. Yeah, <laughs> they have a lot of money. And, and they have a lot of good players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they'll figure it out. They'll figure it out. But then you were working in as a journalist, and that was like what you really loved. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, and I got a chance. Um, it, uh, in Washington, I really liked it. I learned about how Washington works how politics works um, and I got a chance to um, to work on a on a book project I, I got a, a grant from the European Union to travel around um, and study topics of interest to me and this was before the Maastricht Treaty so for me the interesting things were um, labor standards mm -hmm. um, single currency and what was the other one I'm trying to remember what the other one was I think maybe competition policy something like this And I got to travel around and in European countries and meet with these people. They organize a fantastic program. Um, and you meet with people, who are commissioners, but also lower level people. You meet with other journalists. And you spend an intensive time in Brussels, go to these three countries. I went to Spain for the first time. Uh, and Spain had just come into the EU at that time. And it was, it was just fantastic, this whole European Experience, project. Yeah. yeah, just to me was, was fantastic. And, and such a noble idea. Um, my, my Brexiteer friends won't like that, but it is. It is a noble idea. I mean, keeping European countries from, from annihilating each other is a pretty worthwhile mission. We take it for granted now, but yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 
People take things for granted. So, um, you know, if you think about all of these international organizations, including the WTO, they're, 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 the founding principles were, were very noble. Yeah. Um, and so, so um, I enjoyed this very much. And then I had an opportun- opportunity to move to Europe. And I took over um, the managing of our European bureaus based in London. My first daughter was born then. This was the early 90s. And it was an amazing time to be there because they had the Maastricht Treaty, the Berlin Wall had come down, uh, the, the countries of Eastern and Central Europe were migrating towards the EU. Uh, it was absolutely fascinating to watch and you know, to, be, to be really a, a, a part of history. Someone famous whose name now escapes me said that journalism is really the first draft of history, um, which it is really. I mean, yeah. you're, 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 you may be focusing on, on more micro things, but I also wrote a column which was you know, talking about what society in the then Czechoslovakia or Hungary was like uh, and how they were, people were dealing with being free of the Soviet um, yoke. And that was that was fantastic. And Spain, of course, also at this time had 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 been had left the dictatorship. They were a democracy again. Yeah, like uh, that transition period must have been like so it was, interesting. Oh, it yeah. was fantastic. Yeah, uh, and it was you know a very different time. And and of course, of course, during that time was the conclusion of the Uruguay round and the birth of the WTO. You know, between ninety and ninety five, when I was living in London. A lot of stuff happened. It was really quite amazing. So you were running the the European the, bureaus the European from, bureau? from London, yeah. I I don't know if you watched this movie, The French Dispatch, but I imagine it a bit like this. Yeah. Well, <laughs> being a foreign correspondent, I mean, it was a blast. It was so fun, and we would organize stories. We had our guy in Prague and our guy in Brussels. They were to take the um, to take uh, uh, ships. From Rotterdam and from, I guess it was on the on the on the Black Sea. Uh, where did they leave from? Bulgaria, maybe somewhere. And they met. They t- they traveled together and they wrote about. They filed stories from various places along the way, and they met in in Duisburg, and uh, had a beer, and then they <laughs> they went home. But just to see these, this is what and and you know they'd get off the barge and they would go and they would talk to people and well what's life what's life like in Romania now how are things changing, uh, and it was just it was fascinating it was really very very interesting and a lot of fun and I enjoyed. How it. much uh, coverage were were you doing of the WTO of what was going on? Lots, here? yeah, lots. Oh yeah, yeah. We covered the negotiations. We had a correspondent here in Geneva. He's still here in Geneva, actually. John Zaracostas is his name, and he and I worked together. And John knew all of the nitty-gritty details about everything. And um, we we were there at the CICG when the Uruguay round was gaveled by Peter Sutherland. That was pretty special. Uh, and went to Marrakesh uh, for the signing ceremony. Um, that was a ministerial which, which really was about, you know, most of the decisions had been done and the ministers were just there to bless the thing, which, mm-hmm. was, which, was, which was great. Um, and then I came back to, back to the States and uh, was only there for a short while. Uh, I was there for the, um, uh, the, the basically the Republican, I, I saw the, the first real scandal ism between the parties. You, you had a different generation of politicians, and you had Newt Gingrich, who was the who was the speaker, and Bill Clinton, and these guys. They just did not get along. 
when that, I did that's when you think it started. I, I think so. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I covered the finance committee in the Senate in the late '80s, and you had guys who were, I mean, World War II heroes. You know, Bob Dole and, and Lloyd Benson. Um, you had people like Jack Danforth and and um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Bill Bradley. These were these were giants, uh, and they were. And there was at Bob Packwood, and they, these guys, they all knew John Hines. They knew how to work together. They weren't, they understood. I mean, obviously, there were differences between the parties. But if you look at that a snapshot of what it was like then compared to now, it's radically different. And, and I just came back, and I remember, boy, this is a different place. It's really changed. And how has that happened? And that was at the very beginning for what you're saying. I think so. How did you, how were you able to perceive that... Uh Uh, when the government shut down, that to me was shocking. Mm. Uh, and they shut the government down over the budget, and I thought, boy, you know, this is, how is this good? And I remember my parents had come because we had um, tickets to see the Johannes Vermeer show at the National Gallery, which, of course, <laughs> no. The fake Vermeer? Yeah, the, the, it was the real Vermeers. They had a bunch of Vermeers, and there aren't that many Vermeers. What are they? 24 or something like this in the whole world. And they had a bunch of them in the National Gallery. But the National Gallery is run by the federal government, which was closed. My parents came down from New York for this, and, and it was... Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I said, well, what can I say? And I thought, you know, it wasn't just because of the Vermeer thing, but it was because of everything. It's like, wow, that's really changed. And then, you know, I just saw a little bit of this, Um, and then I moved here, and then in '96 I, I came here. So I, I was at the was it the last general council where the ambassador of Mexico said that uh, the DG were, like had something to do with you coming here to the WTO. Uh, well, uh, the, the DDG, like, the, uh, Jesus Sierra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. Uh, what he was did. that? <laughs> well, I knew Jesus very well because he was the Mexican ambassador. Yeah, and he was a great source of mine, and he was a DDG. Yeah. The first one. It's That's one right. One of the first. That's DDG. right. Yeah. And he was a DDG. He worked with Peter Sutherland, uh, and then Alejandro de la Pena, um, mm -hmm. who was his deputy, became the, the, the ambassador. And um, I'm sure that well, I, I actually I, I wasn't. I heard I heard Angel say this, and I was wondering. I suppose that. Uh, ah, so you 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 don't know. No, I didn't know. <laughs> well, I suppose because Jesus and I we had, we had spent a lot of time together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, well, he's he's one of my previous guests. Oh, is he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, he's an amazing guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was um, he he was the DDG for um, for Sutherland, and then he stayed on and, and he was the DDG for Ruggiero as well. Yeah. And maybe he had a good word for me with Ruggiero. I don't know. I okay. Don't know. Ah, but you you didn't know. Okay. I, didn't know. I, well, I, I mean, maybe. I mean, I, I, I like I say, we were friendly, and yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and I you know I had I had a few meals with him when I would come to Geneva. I'd always make a point of seeing him. The office was in the Boudet, yeah. and uh, I would go and have a chat with him, and he always had very interesting things to say. I mean, Mexico has always had some of the very best ambassadors, um, including today, yeah. that are around, thoughtful guys who understand these issues and present them in ways which are, which are very, um, are very, um, uh, very important for the system. And, of course, the thing that was interesting about that in retrospect was that when Ruggiero ran to be the DG... Um, he ran against um, the Mexican president, the F Carlos Salinas. Yeah, yeah, president. yeah. Actually, that. Yeah, actually, I talked. I talked to about that in in my previous. But what what can you tell us about that? 
Because well, actually he had he had ended his term as president. That's right. And he wanted this to be like his next his next thing. Next thing. He didn't he didn't succeed. But well, I remember thinking at the time. Well, no, I was not there. I mean, but thinking, well, at the high level, the position of a DG that's like at the level of a president. That was like well, the interest in the WTO is like really high. Like everyone, yeah. like. Yeah. I think that was a good sign. Well, I'll tell you a little story. Actually, I was a columnist. Um, I didn't. My, I was a. I was an editor. I was the bureau chief in Washington. So I wrote a column every week, and in one of the columns, <laughs> I said, "Carlos Salinas should be the next DG of the WTO." And I said, "Rogero's a good guy. He's a smart guy. But we've had nothing but Europeans running the gat." And it's time for someone from a developing country, someone from the Western Hemisphere. And he also had the, the, the street cred from the NAFTA. Yeah. And he had brought Mexico into the GATT. Yeah. I mean, his, his, and he was a brilliant guy. Uh, and so I, I said, you know, it's, it's good that there's more than one candidate, but Salinas is the candidate they should choose. And Ruggiero saw this column. <laughs> But he hired me anyway. <laughs> did he ask well, you? Like, well, he did. He said, well, I said, you should be aware that I wrote this column. He goes, yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and I, I was very respectful to him. I said, he's a good guy and he's got a lot of, you know, he has a lot of experience. But, you know, the president of an important country that has brought about these, at the time, were considered to be really monumental reforms in yeah. the way that Mexico operated its economy. And this is the sort of guy who would be, you know, a good, a good figurehead for the WTO. And years later, I mean, I don't know how serious these things were or they were considered, like there was even talk about his successor, like maybe coming to WTO, Cedillo, or even Bill Clinton. Well, Ernesto, yeah. He, uh, he was very active, very, very active. He participated in a lot of different advisory groups. And every time we would be doing something, um, he was, and we remember going to Yale and having a dinner at his house. Mm. He had some professors and some kids, you know, who were there and really nice dinner and uh, just discussion about, because he's a big thinker. Yeah, know, he, thinks yeah about, he was like, a, like an academic uh, president. Yeah, yeah, he was. Great guy. Well, and right now he's like fully devoted to academics. Is he yeah. still at Yale? Yeah. He's, he's a great guy. I mean, he, I mean, I should give him a call. When I, when I'll have plenty of free time now. <laughs> <laughs> I actually reached out to him for my, for my podcast, but... No, I mean the Mexican the Mexican contribution to the WTO is to, and to the GATT has been just tremendous. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because I, I'm Mexican. <laughs> say no, <laughs> but I would have said it anyway. Because <laughs> it's true. It is yeah. true. Well, I, I do think that Mexico is very a key player. Um, Absolutely. And I'm glad that you also believe so. <laughs> well, of course, of course, and 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 this is another example of knowing people from a place you learn something about the place that is is not something you can you can read in a book yeah yeah or in the newspaper yeah you know the experience yeah i mean hanging around guys like like um siade and zedillo and and um uh de mateo uh fantastic guy um these guys are, are you know giants in our system yeah and the contribution they've made is huge, and they're and they're good friends. And so, well, I mean, I it, it, I I've learned a lot from all of those guys, and that's I I'm very appreciative. And I'm interested in hearing a bit of your views, how because you've been uh, here involved with the WTO for many years. Mm -hmm. What are some of the 
changes? Like, for, what are some of the big changes that you've seen from that era and now? Well, the sad part of this is this, that the, the trust between the members has deteriorated to a point where um, it's very difficult to make progress in, in difficult areas. Um, whatever it is, whether it's fisheries or whether it's the response to COVID, food crisis. Um, and, that's, and that's worrisome because these are critically important issues for, for, for the people of the world. And that's who we're supposed to be representing. There are issues that they're bigger than any single country can handle. Well, so that's right. we have to handle them together. That's right. And, and that spirit, that esprit de corps, doesn't seem to seem to be in evidence anymore. Um, Is there any way that you think we can get back to that? Yes. Start to achieve some success. Success breeds success. Um, everybody likes a winner. Uh, when we had breakthroughs before, um, I mean, people forget the outcomes in Bali and, and Nairobi were pretty good. It was a pretty good uh, outcomes. And uh, the problem is people pocket that and then they, they want the next thing. And in, in fact, the environment in which we've been working, whether it's been the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, then the pandemic, now the war in Ukraine, these are things that are outside the control of anyone in the WTO, but they obviously have a big, big impact on what happens here. And I think, I think that's, you know, the, the important counterfactual to keep in mind is, okay, maybe the WTO didn't solve all of these problems, but try and imagine how much more difficult our circumstances would be if the WTO wasn't here as a forum, as an as a, uh, important web of international rules that underpins the global trading system. That is what we were talking about earlier, about like we taking it for granted, yes. about the, the uh, European Union, for absolutely. example. Absolutely. But I, I agree with that, and actually that's an argument I use many times. But then another thing is like relying on that for too long. Like at some point we have to like move forward. That's right. Well, I'm actually in the midst of writing something for when I leave, which I'll try and shop around, in which I talk about a lot of elements of the WTO, and one of them is, is that people misunderstand just how important it is because it's a forum where people exchange views and where a lot of problems are solved without having a, tra a massive trade agreement. Actually, I'm, I must say that in my experience working for Israel, that's something that happens a lot. Yeah. Like, uh, because here you have access to delegates from everywhere in the world and you can talk yeah. to them yeah. face to face yeah. and you can solve the issues before even going to a committee to mention it like formally or even a dispute. Yeah. And that that is not unique to, to us. I've seen no. it. I hear a lot. SPS and TBT are yeah. good examples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if someone's saying, well, you know, my products can't get into your market anymore. Well, well you see, we had this outbreak of whatever it is. And so we're restricting imports of whatever the product is. Um, Or we, we are in the midst of changing our safety standards for children's toys. And so the standard, because we've had problems, the standard needs to be changed. You explain this to people. And as I say, very often, governments put in place policies that, that at first you may find problematic, but there's often a very good reason why they're doing this. Yeah. And when they explain it, 
okay, so what do I need to do? Well, these are the new standards you have to meet. And this is something that has a real impact on it the does. ground. Yes. How, how do we like, give more, uh, how do we make people more aware of this? Well, we, we try to put out on our website every day a news item and we have our, our staff, our, our press officers, they cover these committee meetings like, like journalists in a way. Yeah. And they work with the chair and with the divisions and say, today the meeting, and these are not, you know, the dispute settlement body, the general counsel, they generate headlines um, and we give briefings that people will you know, write about. But these smaller meetings, these stories that come out of the Goods Council or, or the SPS committee, these are very important, very important committees. And just explaining, this is what this committee has been doing. This is what they have um, been taking up. Here is some example of, of uh, specific trade concerns that were raised and the discussion ensued. And you know, the problem is, is that a lot of these things get solved out of the limelight. Yeah. Governments just say, okay, I understand what you're doing. Can you give us some help in terms of meeting these new spe specifications that you put in place? Yeah, yeah, you can. And then we'll continue to export your products or import your products. That's, that, that doesn't really make the headlines, um, but it's, it's... And also maybe the WTO doesn't even know about that. Maybe, maybe that happens like behind the scenes. Yeah, that's right. Although there are some initiatives to try to make them like more that we're aware of what happens yeah. if they should solve. Well, I mean, like cases that are settled out of court in dispute settlement. Yeah. People often try to say, well, how many, what percentage of cases has country X won and how many have they lost? It's very hard to say because a lot of times these things are settled out of court. I, I agree that this is like a very valuable, very valuable work that we do here at the WTO. Mm -hmm. But I still think that there's, well, first of all, we can do, we can replicate that success across other committees. Yes, we can. And uh, and then that's like the basic, I think. And there's one, one of my pet peeves, and this is something I know it's difficult, but it would be a lot, it would be a big contribution if we could find some way to simplify and maybe, and maybe harmonize the notification requirements. If the forms were, they're not going to be identical for sure, but if there was some commonality of these forms, because there are developing countries particularly that have difficulty filling these things in because they're tricky, huh? No, I, I can attest to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they are complicated. And, yeah. and, and helping people with technical assistance is a good idea, but maybe there's a way we can streamline these. And I, I, I belong to the IT steering committee and we have all these <laughs> notification portals and we're trying to use technology. Simplify it to make it like, yeah, even like when you're searching, me when I'm searching for things, like, now I think it's getting better, uh, I must say, but before it was like, ah, but this is in this database and this is in this other one. We had to, we didn't know how many databases we had. Yeah. It was, it was the guys on my web team who had more than 50 databases. Yeah. And the problem is, is that everything is siloed. Yeah. So you you go burrowing into one and you realize, oh goodness, maybe the information I want is in another database. You, we're trying to fix that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I am aware of that. And I've seen, I've already seen like some of the results and it's It's, going, it's getting better. Yeah, 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 yeah it's yeah. getting better. But still, you know, the easier you make something, then the easier it will be for people to comply with their obligations. And, and notifications, another example of... Some people don't, some countries uh, don't notify because they may not even be aware that they have to notify. Well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. 
And, and in some cases, that's, you know, if you're talking about whether it's negotiating or disputes, certainly monitoring, the notifications are the lifeblood of these activities because if you don't have the information as to what's actually happening on the ground, well, it's difficult to do those, to do those engage in the activities of those three pillars. Yeah. You have to rely on the actual people doing the import-export to let you know. Oh, that's right. And that is difficult. That's, that, that's one of the things that we've done also is we've, we've kind of, we've worked hard to reestablish the links with business. After Seattle, the WD and the business community kind of uh, Actually, I wanted to talk about that not to mention Seattle. Uh, because at that time, it seems mm -hmm. that the interest in the WTO was at the highest oh, yeah. it has ever been. Oh, yeah. Uh, and right now, actually, there, there were, I, must say that, I must say that there has been some rekindling of interest. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think we've gotten back to the interest that we had during the Seattle days. No, that's true. Um, and I think that that's bad for the WTO. Well, yes. I mean, remember that a lot of the interest that was generated back then was not necessarily no, positive, positive. Yeah, but they say, like, what, what's that There's saying? no bad publicity. Yeah. <laughs> I, I said that at the time quite often, <laughs> which was true, because it did give us an opportunity, for example, to people began to look at things differently. I, I pushed very hard to get the technical assistance that we have made available to journalists. And because all technical assistance in those days was only available for delegations from developing countries. And, and my argument was, yes, but this is helpful to those delegations. Even really, to those delegations, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, because if people in their countries have an idea of what's going on here, it, it helps them. And so we started to do this. We had a German foundation that sponsored this and we invited the ambassadors from the countries where these guys were coming from to come to a cocktail. And they were like, this is a great idea. This is fantastic. Why don't we do more of this? So we, it became part of, of the technical assistance budget. And, and now we get to travel in Latin America, in, in Asia, and in Africa, and go and meet people, uh, members of civil society, parliamentarians, but also journalists, and speak to them face to face. You know, it's, if, again, if you're reading a website about the WTO, okay, that's great because there's information. But if you meet a person from there, who's prepared to sit down with you and take the time and say, look, this is complicated stuff. Ask questions. There are no bad questions except the ones you don't ask. So don't feel intimidated. I'm here. Mm -hmm. Or if you want to talk about it over a coffee or over a beer in a, in a less open setting, let's do that too. And that really has a big impact um, because then you start to get people who are interested in what you're doing and they're knowledgeable about what you're doing. Yeah. And you can say, look, and we have a lot of guys in Mexico who fit into that uh, category. Plus, plus, we had the ministerial conference in Cancun, yeah, which generated a lot of interest. I was just talking about that the other day with someone about the uh, about the green room in Cancun and uh, Luis Ernesto Derbez and um, another 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 Mexican giant uh, who was absolutely brilliant. And he, we had this green room. Someone was talking about the, the Singapore issues. Hmm. Investment, competition, transparency in government procurement, and trade facilitation. And that was the, media, the ministerial at which a decision, a final decision on those four issues was to be taken. And the proponents also very often happened to be, Mexico's in a special category, particularly then because they were the chair, but 
many of those delegations of ministers gathered around, the proponents of the Singapore issues were often in a defensive position on agriculture. And so we started and um, we tried to get some kind of a decision on the, on the Singapore uh, issues. And the position of, that was taken by the EU at that time had been, no, it's all of these issues, we need all of them. And that was a bridge too far. So at that late stage, they said, well, let's, maybe we can look at some of these issues on their individual merits. But this was the last day, and it was, you know, maybe, I don't know, 11 o'clock in the morning. And we had a, a tour de table on this, and he said, okay, look, we're going to break for lunch, and then I want you to come back, and go, you group coordinators, whether it's African group or Africa, Caribbean Pacific, or uh, the, G, the G20, the G33, whoever it was, go back to your constituents and see what they say about the Singapore issues. And then we'll see where we are. If we don't get agreement, I'm closing down the ministerial meeting because it was in a green room and there were plenty of people, ministers, who were not in that green room. And you know how unhappy they get when they're not there and they were having this insurrection downstairs, which Derbez, he was well aware of this. So he said, either we get this deal or, or we don't. And then I'm going to say, you know, it's all over. So he came back and he said, okay, well, what about trade facilitation? No, we don't agree to anything. No, nothing. No. <laughs> and he said, well, that's it. Let's go. And I remember Pascal Lamy was the European commissioner then. And he said, wait, 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 wait. Let's just try another issue. Let's try agriculture. So, so we started... Deborah said, okay, all right, we'll give it one final try. And then the countries that were, as I said, that were defensive on agriculture were hoping to get something on the Singapore issues to sort of offset the concessions they were making by opening their market and reducing their subsidies. Those countries just said, our positions now have gotten a lot tougher. We get none of the Singapore issues. We're not going to cut our subsidies and we're not going to open up our market. And we went around it. We did one tour de table and... Derbez said, well, that's it. And of course, <laughs> these are issues that here now, almost 20 years later, we still have not resolved. Now, Cancun is a really nice place, but I don't think anyone would want to stay in a green room for 20 years <laughs> to be talking about these issues. <laughs> so we, we, I mean, then we, we ended things, boom, we were out of there. Okay. We closed it down quick. And, um, and he was right. You know, and, and the people who were not in the, in the room, they were still, that, I mean, the green room got a very bad reputation because of people not being there saying, why are we not there? Having said that, getting a decision when there's 164 delegations in the room is not easy to do. It's a miracle. That's what I always say. <laughs> it, 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 when you agree, when, 100, when I agree at home and we're four, it's a miracle. <laughs> like negotiating what we're having for dinner is such a... Exactly. Yeah. What do we watch on TV? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Imagine 164. Yeah. Uh, I also, I want to hear your thoughts on, because I started working here with the WTO maybe like 10 years ago, and I saw how there has been like a, like a more, more transparency and, and an openness of information available to the public, yep. to the general public. Yeah. Like even, in, and I'm thinking specifically about the, the selection process of the DG. Yep. I remember the selection process of the previous DG of Acevedo. Yep. And now comparing it to Ngozi's selection process, which was open and anyone from the outside world who wanted to know about what's going on, yeah. it was pretty much there and yeah. they could. Well, we, we changed because we had to. 
We, we, you talked about, the, about trust in people in, among the members uh, eroding. I think, I think one of the big things that really caused a difficulty between the members was the DG selection process of 1999, where the members were deadlocked. It was pretty much evenly split between Dr. Supachai and Mike Moore. We had, we had four months without a DG. Um, and they wound up, they, they each had a three-year term. But that created, I mean, guys who were friends, lifetime friends or professional colleagues, stopped talking to each other. It became personal. Uh, and this place, it doesn't work unless you have a good working relationship. Because, as you know very well, you, you, are, you may be sitting across the table from someone in the morning on one issue, and in the afternoon you're on the same side on another issue. Yeah. And so you have to retain this this professional working relationship. And it's, it's like the it's like the grease that lets the whole thing slide along, uh, and that was that was that was missing. And that then that, that was a, a you know, I knew we were doomed in Seattle when that when that whole thing dragged on, and that process was done in a really intransparent way. We didn't really have ground rules, so they did the ground rules in in uh, I remember. Sergio Marchi was the chair of the general council then, and he got ground rules approved. And then we started to look at how to do, how to do things from our side. And what we decided was we worked out a process where the general council would meet and the, and the candidates would, well, it's like a, a one hell of a job interview, right? They give it a 45 minute presentation, take, 20-minute presentation. They take Q&A for 25 minutes, whatever it is. And then I take them into their press conference. And they do a press conference. And um, maybe they do TV or one-on-one -on -one interviews with journalists afterwards. And we, we would um, webcast these. So people can watch from all around the world. They can see, oh, look at that guy. I mean, he's, oh, he's quite impressive. Or I'm not sure I agree with him on that. And it just opens it up. Hmm. And, and for a lot of the people who are applying for these jobs, well, they're, they're politicians. They have this, they, they don't mind this. They're used to it. That's right. Mm. Well, in fact, they, they like it mm. because it's an, an opportunity to get across their policy ideas. And so we now have this very well choreographed process uh, and it, it, goes, it goes pretty well. It was made more complicated during the, during the last process because we had had the pandemic. Yeah. And we had to make put in place. We didn't want journalists surging forward to surround these candidates because we were worried about, about passing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we set up this system where, and this is something really quite positive, where we could use a Zoom and journalists could participate from, from everywhere. Yeah. So we had a guy from Mexico calling in to posing a question to Jesus during the press conference. And, and that, was, that was cool. We have people from Argentina. We have people from, obviously, Washington and Brussels. Um, but also sometimes coming in from Cairo, uh, coming in from, from, uh, from Cape Town. It's the World Trade Organization, after all. That's right. <laughs> and, and, and we can do it. Yeah. And we, we started having to do it because of the pandemic. But now we're not going back. Why would we? Anyone who wants to, we send out a notice. If you wish to participate in this Zoom call, let us know and we'll send you the contact details. And you, you, raise, <laughs> you raise your little uh, virtual hand. Uh, I did this yesterday when I did a briefing on the on the on the general council, and um, and it works great and it's fantastic, you know. And it means I don't, instead of having to talk on the telephone for three or four hours afterwards to people who are living in other places, they can just tune into the briefing. And if they have 
one or two questions, well, they can they can call or email. And uh, just before you, I ask you about the differences between back then and now, and you mentioned like one bad one. What's yeah. the good one? I think this. This. I think, I think this. This use of technology to reach people um, is fantastic. Okay. It's fantastic, and and we use social media. Social media, well, is I believe for people younger than me, um, but it's a way to reach people who are younger. Uh, it's difficult in a limited number of characters to get across some of the complex things that we're undertaking, the dispute settlement case maybe, or the domestic regulation and services agreement. But you, you tweet the headline and then say, for more information, click here and go to the website. And then, and also, I think you're seeing a lot more openness from the members. Yeah. If you say, look, can I put the chairman's statement on the website? Sure. Um, you know, Santiago Wills gives a press conference uh, last week on fish, and it's a Zoom press conference, and um, and the state he reads a statement, which is then we tape it and we send it out on social media. But he's like a millennial ambassador. Well, that's true. Well, he is. He is. So he is aware. Yeah. Of, well, yeah. he and he just he doesn't think twice about it. Yeah. But but we want to do a video um, with the the key chairs for social media and the website before MC12. So I went to I went to Dacio and I went to Gloria and I went to Santiago. Yeah, yeah, sure. We, we the question is timing. I said, well, we probably should wait till we have a better idea of where we stand, but and then we can we can shape the message around the circumstances. But it wasn't even a sort of oh geez, I don't know. I have to check with Capital or you know even ten years ago you would have had people say. And Lemmy was very good about that. He was very good about about pushing things to be more open. He he was the one who created the public forum, no? Yeah. Uh, no, actually, Not that was Mike before? Moore. Okay. <laughs> and it was interesting because Alejandro uh, de la Peña didn't like the idea, so he said, "We're not going to call it. We're not going to call it the public forum. We're going to call it a public symposium, because that'll sound so boring that no <laughs> one will want to come." He did. He really said that. Oh my God. And I said, "All right, well, fine. You know, as long as we do it." And then, of course, every well, nobody because this was after Seattle. We had to do some things differently. And, uh, and it was, you know, it was fine. And he said, oh, this is much better than I thought it was going to be. And now it's like an event that people look forward to every year. It's huge. Yeah. And, and we get, we get, we're oversubscribed in terms of panels. I think we had 110 panels <clears throat> last year. Yeah. And we had something like 250 uh, requests. So we had to say no to some good people. And part of the problem also is you have to ensure you have, you have diversity of perspectives, but of regions, gender, uh, levels of development, all of these things, which makes it a kind of a multi-level chess match. Yeah, actually, when I'm looking at the schedule, I'm like, oh my God, these two are at the same time. Like, like it's difficult to, to make a decision where to go. Well, a couple of years ago, a, a, um, a, a, a European delegate from a very prominent country, I won't mention the name, came to me and said, you know, this, what are you, what are you, what's going on? We have... We don't have as many farmer groups as before. We have many more women's groups, but many fewer farmers' groups. What's happening? I said, well, to be perfectly frank with you, I'd rather have the farmers angry with me than the women. <laughs> and he said, he goes, well, yeah. You're right. <laughs> Hard to argue with that logic. I said, well, there you go. <laughs> Maybe you could have something, a panel like women in farming, and we'd, we'd, we'd give them the thumbs up. They could come right in. So... Well, 
Uh, and last question. So sure. you'll be retiring uh, soon. Yeah. You talked about a book, but what else? No, no, I'm writing, I'm writing an article. It's an article. Yeah, it's an article. And I, I, I hope to do writing and speaking. Um, these are things that I've been doing for most of my career, all of my career, really. Um, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. I'm following the advice of one of my mentors, Rufus Yerksa. Do you know mm -hmm. Rufus? Yes. Rufus said, look, when, you, when, you, when word gets out that you're going to retire, people are going to come to you and say, well, you know, we'd like you to do this. Don't make any decisions at, at first. Wait, reflect, enjoy your family. Uh, in my case, our daughter's wedding coming up. And um, uh, think about it. Reflect a little bit. And after a couple of months, when you've given it some thought, Um, particularly now when you've got this different kind of working arrangements, people can work for people from anywhere, really. Decide what it is you want to do and how you want to do it. Talk to people who you know and, and trust and see what they say. And that sounded like wise advice, so that's what I'm going to do. And I spend the summer with my family in the States and then try to figure out my, my next steps. Great. Well, Keith, it has been wonderful talking to you. Thank you for the great story. Thank you so much. <laughs> it was really fun. <laughs> Thank you. All the best. This was the wonderful Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig it?